Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for November 19th, 2023. Join us as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifley. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have the full crew back. Um, and tonight we've got another exciting show. Uh, Dr. Isabel Skinner is going to join us for the second time. And what's exciting about having Dr. Skinner on this time is we're going to let her really focus on her area of expertise, which is immigration issues and the U.S. border issues with a particular emphasis on um, the U.S.-Mexico border and immigration from Mexico. Obviously, a big issue, um, and one that we got into in some ways with Dr. Or, or Ron Hetrick a few weeks ago, but this is more surrounding the actual issues of actual immigration and the people. So a nice, um, you know, second chapter to that discussion. But until then, um, we got to start off with some sad news uh, that happened during the day. Um, it was announced during the day that um, former First Lady Rosalind Carter um, from Plains, Georgia, wife of Jimmy Carter, passed away, um, and, and I think it was announced just a few days ago that she was entering hospice, and um, this is, comes on the heels of, I guess, just a few weeks ago, her and President Carter did make a public appearance riding in a car, um, but they are both, she was 96, um, and, and just very sad news, I mean, obviously not completely unexpected, but still so, so sad. Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on former First Lady Carter? She was she was such an amazing woman. Um, she was a champion for all kinds of really important issues that sometimes fall under the radar. Um, one of her initiatives, um, the Rosalind Carter Institute, um, is a clearinghouse for caretakers mostly family caretakers, so it provides training and support for people who are taking care of um, relatives or, you know, close family and friends. Um, And it's something that, you know, I only heard about because I have a friend who works there. Um, But it was really an important initiative and one that, like I said, sort of went unnoticed. But um, in the statement from the Carter Center, uh, former President Carter made it very clear that she was a close partner to him uh, for all the projects that the Carter Center, uh, all the Carter Center initiatives. So uh, we lost the champion there today, and uh, my heart goes out to the family and all the friends around the world that I'm sure they have. And um, it's a loss. She had a really incredible life. And I'm grateful for all the work that she and her husband have done over the years, over the decades. Yes. 
Uh, Tim, I guess I need to mention not only former First Lady of the United States, but also former First Lady of Georgia as well. Um, your thoughts on the, the life and legacy of Rosalind Carter? Yeah, uh, the only time that I ever had the opportunity to really meet her and, and talk to her was uh, – when she was campaigning for her husband uh, in the year that he was elected governor in 1970, uh, she came to Rome, uh, David, and uh, I, I met her there and 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 got got to talk to her. But she was a uh, strong force uh, behind her husband's career. Um, for 77 years, more than 77 years, she was right by his side, uh, and she championed a lot of great causes, did a lot of great things in her life. Uh, in her together, did a lot of great things uh, in and out of politics, especially out of politics with some of the initiatives that they pursued after his presidency and uh uh, all my best to the family, of course, and uh, she leaves quite a quite a legacy as far as first ladies are concerned. I believe she is the second uh, longest lived first lady behind uh, Bess Truman, if I'm not mistaken. I, I saw that same thing because I looked it up, and, but there is a first that her and President Carter hold, and 77 years is the longest. Yeah. presidential marriage. Uh, Mike Lukovic yep. did a cartoon, uh, and it was an honor of them where this this house, and it says 75th wedding anniversary, and it was an homage to um, their legacy, and it was really their legacy with Habitat for Humanity, and then their, at the mm-hmm. time, 75-year marriage, which we know that when you married 50 years, it's called the golden anniversary. We just don't even really have a word for the 75th anniversary because the number of people that make it there is just so small that it's just almost unheard of. And 77 years of marriage, that's probably not only one of the longest marriages and it's not only the longest marriage in presidential history, it's probably one of the longest marriages in American history or, or, you know, in the top 0.1% or something like that. Um, Can't say enough fine things about both of them and um you know wish the family including a friend of the show her grandson former senator state senator jason carter all the best um but we do have to you know we'll segue into some politics in the time before our guest comes on and Catherine, unfortunately because of technical difficulties and that happens to all of us <laughs> um, you weren't able to be on but we talked about those Really pretty significant 2023 election results. Just what were some of your thoughts on the races that Tim and I covered last week? Well, I was just so pleased to see uh, good voter turnouts and uh, winning for Democrats. I think one of my favorite uh, reports I read was about a school board that ousted all their, uh, like, oath keeper I think they were Oath Keeper um, members, so I like to hear things like that. And uh, I think overall it was a good night for Democrats. I know we're going to talk more about Ohio, so I won't mention that. But uh, it, w- it was an, it was a refreshing 
uh, night to be following politics. Yes, and it may have been a bunch of Oath Keepers got turned out as well, but I know the Moms for Liberty who were oh, really big what, in school were right they, were. they had a terrible night. Um, the, yeah, they that was like the you know when you get an endorsement that's meaningful, that was like the anti-endorsement. Um, hey, hopefully my opponent will get endorsed by the Moms for Liberty. Um, that'll be my key. Yeah. Well, um, well, let, let's talk, let's segue into that and talk about Ohio. And Ohio was different in that it wasn't. And I'm sure they may have had a special election for a state senate race or some municipal elections, but there were two referendums, and we had talked about them um, leading into, into the election. One was for protection of reproductive freedom, and the other was to legalize marijuana. And both passed, and there's probably some political you know, discussion about that, but to me the bigger story is how do these unfold after the election. But let me just start off with you know, any political impact. Um, Tim, your thoughts, and we could just for the sake of time, we'll discuss them at once. Um, what were some of your takeaways on the fact that these – uh, initiatives both passed. Well, uh, you know, once again, it it, it was a, a message to the Republicans. We know what's driving it, and the American people in all of these states. Uh, and I'm talking about the abortion issue here. Uh, uh, the American people are telling Republicans, you know, what we want is we want the right. And we want that to be legal in state, and it's happening everywhere from Kansas to Ohio. It doesn't matter if it's a red or a blue state. These things are not only passing, guys, but they're passing very easily, aren't they? Catherine, your takeaways from those referendum? Everything Tim just said, people, you know, people are are finally waking up and voting uh, for the things that they believe in and making an effort to go to the polls, even in an off year when they only have a couple things to vote for. Um, So good on Ohio. Proud of them. Yes, and I will say something interesting. There were some counties where, one would be more popular than the other. And the more traditionally democratic places in those larger cities and suburbs, um, the reproductive freedom uh, initiative was a little more popular. In the other places where they passed, the um, legal, legalization of marijuana was more popular. And some of those more red just, counties. I want to I clarify on the weed bill because – it wasn't just legalization. It was legalization of recreational marijuana. Right, which absolutely. Is, which is an important distinction. Right. Well, and, and typically when I, when I mention it, if, if it was a medical, I would probably use the qualifier when I just say legalization. Okay. Then I'm saying it, it's more expensive. Um, you know, I, I guess you can't shoot it out of a rocket or something, but uh, the, I'm talking about the, you know, that, that okay. usage. I just wanted to but, but clarify that for, yeah. our, for our listeners. Yeah, well, I mean, because it, the it, other has probably been already passed, because that's even passing in some far more conservative states, the, the, the medical issue part of it. But now let's get into what to me is the real issue, is the real story. Is these passed, and we know what that means, and it's sending the same message, just like Tim said, 
was sent in Kansas and some of the other states on issue one. Um, but now the representatives and senators in the Ohio State Legislature, I'm not sure if Governor DeWine has said much on either. If he has and y'all know, let me know. But um, those legislators, they have been talking about how they can circumvent both of these <laughs> referendums, but they've been very vocal about issue one and just completely going against the will of the people. My first question is, Catherine, do you think they'll be successful? Um, I don't think so, uh, but they can try. Tim, do you think they'll be successful? In the short term, they might be, but I'll tell you what, they all better get ready to go to court. Because that's exactly where they're going if the voters pass the referendum and it becomes a law, which, of course, is, is what just happens, and then they try to circumvent that law, they're going to be taken to court by a lot of folks. And I just yeah. hope they enjoy being in court and paying money for attorneys and stuff like that and 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 also facing the voters the next time they run even if they think they're in pretty safe districts uh because some people are going to come after them on this now the voters are telling them something and they better listen to them yeah they, they really had better do it. they just can't continue to ignore the voters because eventually they're going to pay with the one thing they value the most. And what's the one thing, David, that a politician values most? That's his political job. That's right. Yes, Um, and and we may get to that on some of that later. But here's the, the, the thing is, if they're successful, that was my next question. How are the voters going to react? And I want to do a little prefacing here. Um, there were there was initiatives like you know not these but for um, expanding Medicaid in both Missouri and Nebraska, extending expanding the minimum wage in Nebraska. All of those passed the voters in past years. Now I'm not so sure how binding those were, but in those states, but they passed. The voters wanted those things. The legislature completely ignored the people. And in those two states, they have not paid a price. Now, I do wonder what's going to happen. I do think that the elections in which the Republicans could be putting most at risk by doing this would be that 2024 um, Senate race. Sherrod Brown may win without anything like this, but something like this could really boost his candidacy to where it gives him a few points and he wins reelection. From there, some congressional districts. The congressional district that Tim uh, Tim Ryan left is now going to open back up. And Youngstown does have a long-term history of being very Democratic, been a little more Republican in recent years, but those kind of seats could open up. Now, some of these hardcore Republican seats that are, you know, Republican legislators are winning, you know, 20 and 30 points, those may not be persuadable. So I think that's where the um, blowback is going to start Catherine, where do you think it starts? Uh, I I agree with you. I think it starts in those uh, those you know sort of I hesitate to use the term swing districts, but um, it could also I mean it 
likely to have an impact on the general election too for president because all those people are going to be voting and uh it's possible that this puts a mark would put a mark on republicans for trying to stop it so uh i think they need to be um, careful how they uh how they if they're going to challenge it they need to be careful about it Tim, I want to push forward to you on that. Let's talk about the presidential race. Ohio, the closest race to state in 2004. Barack Obama won it twice in 2008, 2012, but then Donald Trump's won it twice in 2016 and 2020. It's seen as a state that used to be a swing state, but it's got to be one of those states where – if Democrats could expand the map, it's on the short list, right? Mm-hmm. I think it is. Uh, with things like these big U.S. Senate races going on, uh, it's a state that Democrats, I think, are going to target next year and say, let's play ball there on a national level. Uh, Republicans cannot lose Ohio. Uh, they would have to spend a lot of money trying to hang on to that state. And as we've just seen in Ohio, there's some major issues there that are going against them. And and what is their party doing but doubling down? So, yeah. uh, you, you know, we, if, if Ohio goes down to, say, a four- or five-point race, that that's uh, – treasure and time that Republicans don't need to be spending that they could spend somewhere else, and it's, it's going to hurt them. Um, so I, I, think, I think Ohio may turn into a lot more of a battleground next year because of this. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think you now have to do some, not polling like some of these top-line numbers we're seeing that we hope to discuss later or on a future show, but more in-depth how folks are feeling, particularly with the backlash if the Republicans do ignore these issues, and see if you could put it on the um, list because you also helped Sheriff Brown. Also, I think if people in these other three states, Pennsylvania next door, Michigan above, and then Wisconsin a little bit over, see what happened in Ohio, that could push them just a few – a point or two back Democratic, and without – those three states, those three states alone, yeah. set aside the Sun Belt states like Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, that could decide a presidential map right there. Well, let's go well, ahead look. and segue. Let's go, go ahead, segue over to our guest, and we'll come right back to you, Tim, after a while. But right now, we want to welcome into the uh, for the second time for the from the University of Illinois Springfield, Dr. Isabel Skinner. Welcome, Dr. Skinner. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yes. And we're so glad to have you back because, as I was saying in our intro, your real area of expertise is immigration and U.S.-Mexican border issues, or at least it's one of your areas of expertise, correct? Yes, that is right. And so I'm keeping in mind to uh, keep things brief because I could talk about this all day long. (laughs) Yes. Well, I want to start out with a global question. 
Um, and then I know uh, Catherine and Tim have plenty of other questions, but I may ask more than one. But this is this global question. I've listened to a book recently and then read somewhere else that illegal the height of illegal immigration was 2007. I mean, we're 16 years away from that. Yet a lot of folks talk about it as this problem, and I'm just going to use the language of it being a problem, we'll say, of that's right. built over the past 20 years. And it's built to the point where a lot of Republican voters talk about what a problem it is, and it's just got to be stopped, to the point where I don't think a lot of Democrats want it that are running for office then want to talk about it at all. So you go back about 10 years, and we had the DREAM Act, and we had um, you know, people like Marco Rubio and John McCain on the Republican side of the aisle that would look at this issue. Now it seems like there's no space to even have a coherent conversation to actually work on the issue. My question right. is, what are some steps we could take to actually get to a place where we can have a functional, reasonable conversation about the issue of immigration. Yes, definitely. So I agree that the um, changes in the way that we think about this do not match up with actual changes in who is crossing the border, how many folks are crossing, and those types of numbers. Um, One thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico border, For most of the history of that shared border, um, migration back and forth has been approximately even. And it's still, you know, we don't talk about the numbers of people returning to Mexico or going to Mexico, including American expats. But for most of the history, there has actually been pretty much even, even, you know, passage between both sides of the border. So that just really goes to show how distorted of a view we have. So I think that the problem itself actually is the rhetoric uh, because um, we know that the way the media has framed immigration has changed uh, voters' attitudes. A great piece by um, Marissa Abahano and others uh, came out a few years ago that talks about how the way that the New York Times and other, you know, relatively mainstream, even left-leading outlets have talked about immigration has changed the way voters think about this to the extent that this has created uh, new white voters in the Republican Party. So it actually changed the way white voters um, identify as a whole. And that's a really interesting study, but there's a whole body of work about how um, even though it does not necessarily reflect actual changes, the rhetoric has changed over time. It has become securitized, and it has become racialized, and so um, immigration has become synonymous with security, and also immigration has been seen as being um, by uh, Latino and Hispanic folks, and that is uh, a choice, you know, that was made by uh, rhetoricians and, and leaders. So there's a lot more I could say about that, but I, I, I guess I would say that we really need to get a handle on um, matching up some of this rhetoric to to realities, right? And, and so until we do that, um, it'll be very difficult to find common ground uh, for a bipartisanship uh, immigration policy again. Yeah, well, this is going on close to 
you know, upwards of eight years where, and probably closer to 10, where we can't have a functional conversation. A lot of this has to do with the way that the issue is framed, I think, particularly in the Republican Party and some of the hot-button rhetoric that happens. How do we get, in particular, Republican voters that are not necessarily going to read the latest extensive study to not just simplify it into they're bringing crime, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing guns. How do we actually have a better conversation where we get solutions? Right. Um, unfortunately, I may be not the, the most optimistic person to, to talk about this. Uh, I study the rhetoric specifically, so I'm technically in the world of political psychology. So I don't believe that people are rational, right? So I'm one of those political scientists that, you know, I don't think people are rational. I think we have bounded rationality. We all have limits, and that's everybody. But uh, the problem is that it's it's a lot easier for us as humans to retain simple cues, uh, like calling somebody, you know, a criminal, which is very vivid and threatening, than it is to understand this complex situation. And it's been... You know, it's been uh, an undertaking for me to learn about it. It's not something that we really learn about uh, in in K through 12 education. Uh, and so, I believe that most attitudes are symbolic on this issue. They're not really shaped by the facts out there. Um, but there is some positive evidence that empathetic language can, you know, remind us that he of uh, the folks that are involved, and, and that's I have some work that um, is not published yet, but hopefully will be soon that uh, discusses this. So most of my work has looked at the other side about the uh, security threat type of language that we use, um, but you know we need to not give away, uh, and by we I mean folks that care about about. Um, the humanity of immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers need to not give away this game so easily. We, we can't give up. We have to continue to uh, reject dehumanizing language and favor humanizing language. Uh, you know, I, I like to teach people the facts and, and, and bust the myths, uh, but I really think that the more reasonable thing to do with the preponderance of evidence I've seen is to you know, show people the humanity, show people the human side of this story. Yeah. Well, I still have plenty of other things I'd like to ask about, but that's not fair to Catherine and Tim. So I'm going to pass it to them, and if there's any time, I may get into some of those other issues. Catherine? Hey, thank you so much for joining us. This is a, a fascinating topic and so hard to uh, sort of wrap our minds around sometimes. My question for you is, I'd like you to sort of, uh, if if you could wake up tomorrow and a lot of these problems would be solved, what are the solutions? Like, what, I mean, I know our, our, our House and Senate are complete odds and that, that they're not going to probably do anything about it, but... If we could do something, what would be the solution? How would we manage this immigration in a fair and quality way? Like, how could how would we do that? 
Right. Um, again, I feel like my expertise is more about how we kind of got into this mess in the first place and, you know, really understanding the way that history has shaped these moments and the way our minds work to, um, to uh, create the situation. So um, a lot of times I feel like I'm, you know, shouting into the wilderness like people talking <laughs> on, the, on the news about crises. It's like, well, how do you think we got here? All of these are based on choices. And so uh, the good news about the bad news about choices is, of course, some of this was intentionally designed to harm people, and that's really that's really the hard part. The good part about choices is that these are policies that, yes, they have been created and entrenched over decades and centuries, but we can undo them. You know, we can choose another another direction. So I listened to the podcast where you were talking um, to uh, Mr. Ron Hetrick, and and you know, uh, he knows probably more than I do about the labor history side of this, but I know a bit as well, and, and I would have to say that um, it seems like we need to come to terms with reality that um, we have a need in this country for um, allowing migration and allowing people to work on a uh, migrant, a migrant status, whether or not they become citizens, and we need to allow for that to happen. Uh, but also, I would add that, uh, and that's in order for our economy to function, and that's in order for us to not become a shrinking society. That's the only thing that's keeping our demographics from shrinking is actually immigration. And our economy is dependent on these workers, as uh, Mr. Hedrick said. How also, however, I would also add that we really need to worry about the humanity, again, about the quality of life that these workers have, uh, because we don't need a new Bracero program that, you know, makes false promises and puts people in dangerous, arduous situations. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that the Bracero program, they think of it as a success. And it was a success in terms of economically for the U.S., but it was not a success for many of the people who were most directly impacted by it. So we need, if, in order for it to be fair, we need to make sure that uh, the workers themselves and families and, and individuals who are coming for a better life, you know, get uh, humane a treatment at the very least, right? Yeah. That's very helpful. Sorry, I, I think. I, no, it's fine. No, you're, you're doing great. Um, <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. Like, I always, when my, uh, you know, friends would say, well, you know, get these immigrants out of the country. You know, they need to go. Not my friends, but acquaintances. And yeah. I would say, okay, let's do that. And let's pay $10 for our chicken sandwiches from McDonald's. And I'm willing. If that's, if that's what you really want, that's what we'll do. Um, because I don't think people understand, even today, this, this has been, these conversations have been going on with me for years. But even right. today with the with the, all the evidence that we are dependent on these workers. But we, I absolutely agree with you. We, we need to make sure that they're being treated like Americans should be treated, like American workers should be treated, and right. not just take advantage of them for whatever re, for, in whatever way we have, because we, ha, we, we all know we have. So I think that those are really important matters and to be um, 
considered in whatever fashion we try to improve the immigration circumstances as they are now. So thank you for putting those words, and thank you for that work, because it's really important and I think is often uh, ignored. I think there's a lot of talk about how we need the we need the workers. There's a lot of talk about you know their brain crime and there's but there's not enough talk about what how we treat them and how right right they come here they you know all of you know most of the people there I know and I mean I can say specifically my family came here from Germany for a better life in the 1800s yeah and and they worked really hard but they weren't mistreated. Well, maybe right. they were. I don't know. But so I mean, that's why that's why people come here, and we should we should uh, make that aspiration worthy, right? Definitely, definitely. Well, thank, and thank you, you so for much. that question. I I really appreciate your insight. Thank you, and I'm going to pass it to Tim. Good evening. Uh... Again, thank you for being with us. Um, just right off the bat, does the average American understand the difference between an illegal immigrant and a refugee? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. And and this is actually a problem within academia. I've I've had. Uh, People get a little hot under the collar at conferences when um, myself or colleagues, when we conflate, you know, the words migrant or et cetera in, in our, our surveys, but our response is, you know, listen, people don't know the difference. And so we can try and separate them, but the problem is that we also need to use different, we need to use different variables to get at folks' understanding uh, with with our knowledge that their their understanding might be very limited. And so definitely this is a pet peeve of mine in the media as well. There's no differentiation between, um, I use the umbrella term migrant a lot, and I think that that's, that's reasonable, but there's no differentiation between, you know, migrants who are also asylum seekers, who are also refugees. Like the folks that are, um, a part of the quote-unquote crisis in, especially here in Illinois and in New York, um, those folks are mostly asylum seekers and refugees. And so they have a legal right to claim that status or to at least go through the process. And it's just not spoken about in that way. Hmm. Now, um, uh, uh, another thing, um, when you're looking at the largest motivating factor affecting the average American's view on immigration to southern border, it, yes. it, is racism the largest motivating factor? Right. So we we know that party ID is very strong because, of course, this is highly polarized at this point. Although I will say both parties, you know, have a lot a lot they need to think about in terms of the policy that they're producing um, and whether or not it's consistent with international and national rights and uh, law. Uh, however, there are very big differences in the way these things are framed by the parties. 
Uh, but then other factors do matter. Race, the race of the respondent or the race of the citizen, you know, matters in shaping their attitudes. Other identities like religion, I have a piece about this uh, matter, uh, a published piece about this. And, you know, um, but also the race uh, and the way that migrants themselves are described does matter. And we can see that through many different uh, studies. And so, unfortunately, there is a racialized aspect. But this also makes perfect sense if we think about the way these policies have been laid out and um, publicized in a very racialized way. Mm -hmm. Now, where it concerns members of Congress, does it seem that it is more politically expedient for them to keep immigration as an issue rather than actually developing a comprehensive plan with legislation? Absolutely. I, I completely, uh, that, and you know, I, I hate to endorse or, or agree with, uh, or, you know, I think it's correct, but, you know, a kind of cynical uh, or at least not super optimistic viewpoint. But unfortunately, that is definitely what I think that, um, you know, again, going back to, um, to Ron uh, Hetrick's um, estimation, you know, if we could just show people that this is economically beneficial, then maybe they'll come along. But it's also economically beneficial for employers and for politicians to exploit uh, the work of folks at the lowest rate possible. And when people are undocumented, you know, they don't have any labor rights and protections. They're still protected by the Constitution and that's something we need to clarify that, you know, if you're a, if you're a visitor or you're, uh, you know, even if you don't have status, you still have certain uh, protections as a person just, you know, residing on, walking on this land. Uh, so I'm worried about those types of rights being eroded. But anyway, I, you know, you can also exploit folks the best if they don't have status. So. That, that is cheap labor. And so unfortunately, I think there's some vested interest in that. But also, I think that it's a divisive, um, what, what, what's the word, like a cleaver issue, you know? And we do see that. And so I don't think that there's necessarily a great interest in solving this problem. And also, it is a complicated, intractable problem. So it's, it's not... It's not so easily done, but it certainly is easily maintained as um, the status quo, which is very, very problematic, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Now, historically, uh, beginning with right after the revolution, the long-term residents of the United States in all these periods uh, have resisted allowing immigrants into this country. We saw it with the Irish, with the Chinese laborers, uh, with the folks that came over from Europe at the turn of the last century. There was always a resistance. Is, is this time different? Is it worse? Is it just another period how does this stack up with other periods like it in our history? 
That's a great question. This is something I've thought about a lot. I'm not a historian, but some of my very good uh, friends and colleagues are, and so we talk about this history quite a bit. I would say that there are a lot of similarities, as you mentioned, over time. And so one way to frame it could be that we're still talking about things in a very similar way using uh, some pretty dehumanizing stereotypes and language in 2023 that we were, uh, you know, before the revolution, uh, during the early 18th and 19th centuries. And so that should maybe ring a few bells. Maybe we haven't necessarily learned some of our lessons. Um, though also I would say that certain populations, including Irish folks, German folks, uh, have been what scholars call embraced into the cloak of whiteness. And so even populations that were not originally considered to be white um, have become so over time, but that's not true for everyone. And so specifically Asian uh, immigrants and Latino immigrants, both from the global south and from the Middle East and North Africa, have received, I would, I would say, the most uh, backlash uh, throughout the United States history. Mm -hmm. And one, one final question, and I'll throw it back to David. There are many now who say because of our polarization as a society, it seems that we choose up sides on everything from television commercials to politics to places to eat. One group goes one way. Another group goes another way. Each stays in their own group and doesn't talk to the other group. And then we look at an issue like immigration. Are we in a position as a society to work together to find an answer? Right. I think that, um, again, this would require a lot of cognitive, of mental, of also, you know, digging deep, um, I'm just going to say it morally, by a lot of people to recognize and reject the way this issue has been mispresented mis um, and has been used as a cleaver against us. So, you know, all of us are not being served by the way things currently are. Uh, very few folks, I will say, are, are being served by the way things currently are. So, um, you know, I think that it's not a partisan issue to say that we need to uphold our humanitarian international commitments and also uh, uphold the U.S. law, you know. And so um, that's not controversial. And yet it's happening every day when we erode the right to seek asylum. This is a right, yeah. you know, and it just drives me crazy that I feel like I – I have to take it, and I'm very blessed to have the opportunity to say it on the radio today, but I take the opportunity every day to say it because I, I'm worried that um, it's not uh, being said or heard enough. Well, I thank you for that, and with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, Dr. Skinner, they didn't ask about two more board questions I wanted to ask about and um, I'd let you know about these ahead of time. Uh, one of the presidential candidates in the GOP primary, Vivek 
uh, Ramaswamy, has really caught a lot of attention. And one of his proposals is to build a border wall not only along the American-Mexican border, but also the entirety of the American-Canadian border, which obviously we know is much longer. Um, and you think, well, he's just trying to be attention. One of our frequent guests we've had on the show, uh, Walter Masterson, he goes out to uh, Republican rallies and talks to people attending those. I actually saw on one of his recent videos someone without mentioning Vivek Ramaswamy by name actually talked about this idea about how he expected a border to be built along the northern border between America and Canada as well. Do you think this is the kind of idea that may pick up steam to where we see actual part portions even of walls built between America and Canada? I would be – I've been wrong before, right? I've been wrong before, uh, but I would be very surprised to see that, um, it, you know, without – specifically going after a, a policy or a candidate, just speaking really generally about the issue, I would say that, you know, most experts would tell you it does not make sense at all. Economically, it doesn't really make sense in the way it understands potential security threats. Um, walls don't work, uh, but also, you know, in terms of migration, a lot of immigrants and refugees are actually trying to get to Canada from the U.S. Um, and so that's, it's not as though that's necessarily happening the dire directionally the way that we're, that we're talking about with a, a northern wall. It does not make sense economically. You know, we have, a, a, we have economic and also, you know, political, sociocultural relationships with Canada and with Mexico, a lot of folks are more accessibly able to go back and forth, at least at the northern border. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that it's a perfect example of a policy proposal which has nothing to do with the realities, right? And that's the thing that really scares me is, yet again, we have uh, this language that just is not consistent with anything that actually makes rational sense on the ground. And again, I, I know people aren't rational, right? Uh, but it, it's it's not evidence-based. It's, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say about, about that. Yes, and one final border question, and this one's one that came up a few weeks ago. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas has started putting out a razor wire border between the American states of yeah. Texas and New Mexico. Um, to me, this seems kind of like not even legal because you, there's places of the Constitution right. where you can't impede trade between two states, and there's been court cases fleshing yeah. that out between Georgia and Maryland in one case back in the late 17, early 1800s. Um, what are your thoughts on how this whole thing will end? Um, between Texas and New Mexico. Right. So I read the article, and I want to note that um, the uh, governor of New Mexico, um, uh, Governor Lujan Grisham, mentioned her read on it was that Abbott should turn away from a never-ending stream of political stunts. 
you know, and I think that that's something that uh, might need to be taken seriously because, of course, this is legally dubious. Does it violate the Commerce Clause? You know, I think so. But also there are other questions about whether or not states should be making immigration policy at all. They are, but this is an open question legally. It's certainly an open question about whether or not there should be any type of barrier between states. Uh, but furthermore, this is a human rights law issue because, you know, the use of razor wire, um, it obviously has severe humanitarian consequences. So, again, I have to go back to this idea that we need to realize that these are human beings and we have um, human rights commitments that we've made. Um, in the world of immigration, uh, in terms of advocates and in terms of, of, of scholars, we often call the uh, deterrence by any means possible sort of strategy, uh, attrition through deterrence. We call that the misery strategy because the idea is to make it so miserable, so difficult to live, or to, you know, just use violence against people to hurt them um, that they can't do it. And so, you know, we really have to be careful about that type of uh, reality, that type of world. Yes. Well, um, Dr. Skinner, we thank you so much for coming on tonight. And I have a feeling that these immigration issues, since we are not even talking about them in rational ways, we're going to continue to see them. And so we have a feeling we're going to continue to uh, call on you in the future. But until you're on the next time, Tell our listeners about some places they might uh, connect with your research and thoughts on this and any other issues. Definitely. Um, so I have a professional website through the University of Illinois Springfield. So if you go to the School of Politics and International Affairs, I have a website there. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I have a recent piece which I mentioned um, about um, the relationship between uh, identity, including religion, and that's at the International Journal of Public Opinion Research. And so, you know, that's linked out on my side as well. But um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. And, yeah, I don't think I'm out of a job anytime soon with this issue. <laughs> I would love to get to talk with you all. Yes. Well, thanks so much for joining us again on the Kudzu Vine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Bye. All right. Dr. Isabel Skinner, one of the fine professors from University of Illinois Springfield. I think we've had three different ones as we had Magic Wade for the second time last week, and I know Matthew Garris has been on with the Kudzu Vine with us as well. Um, well, let's kind of pick back up. Tim, you were wanting to make a point. Hopefully that engaging discussion we just had didn't cause you to forget your point, but um, pick back up. You know, yeah, I was wanting to make a point about one thing we did not mention when it concerns uh, the battle for states uh, next year. Look at what the Republicans in Georgia are suddenly discussing doing. Yes. Uh, you sent us this link this week, David. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the expansion of Medicaid. I've got to ask you guys, could you in your wildest dreams have imagined 
this happening, say, 15 years ago when, you, you, you know, uh, could, 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 you know it, it just wouldn't have happened. It, it would not have happened in, even in 2016. Uh, what caused it to happen? Was it the recent success of Democrats in elections here? What do you think? Well, I, Catherine, if you want to go first, you can, but I do have thoughts. Well, first of all, I, we probably need to clarify that what they're proposing is similar to the Arkansas plan where it's not really expanding Medicaid. It's paying for uh, plans on the, on the ACA to Georgians who qualify. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different than expanding Medicaid. It's, just, it, it's yeah. similar, but it's a little bit different. Good. It's yeah. all I'm, good, but... But yeah, um, I think they're I think they're doing it because they want uh, some attention on Georgia, and they recognize that they're they're leaving a bunch of money on the table. Yeah, I, I would like to say that I would think if if you ask me, what has been the absolute biggest problem, worst thing, biggest blind spot? For Georgia Republicans over the past 15 years, I'd say it's on getting medical care to Georgians. Look how many places in rural Georgia um, hospitals and medical facilities have closed. If you gave people more access to Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of those facilities could have stayed open because I know a lot of people want to think that all the poor people in Georgia live inside the city limits of Atlanta. But that is just wholly wrong. Where you actually have a thriving, functioning economy, you have less of that. Where you have a ton of people that are suffering and need in Georgia or in rural communities throughout the state, particularly in the southern portion of the state, where they're 100 miles from any major city, Atlanta or even a Tallahassee or Jacksonville or wherever, Charleston, South Carolina. And so those folks need medical care. And so maybe the Republicans have just looked at the math of the situation and know that something's got to change. It's amazing. When you stop grandstanding, like we talked about in our last segment, building walls between America and Canada, putting up razor wire between American states, and you say, what can we do to actually solve a problem? You'll come up with solutions get around to something that might actually help people. And that's, this may be a case where this is going to happen. And, you know, as a Georgian, I'll take it. You know, if people want to come up with good ideas, I don't care which party they're in if you want to come up with solutions for the people. Um, but let's get back to that question, you know, about – and we just have just a few minutes left – about um, what are we going to do – um, with, with this information we have. We saw when people go to the polls in the past several elections, Democrats win. But in the last few months and maybe even longer, when we poll people, we still see different results. It's still grim, grim, grim for Democrats. Uh, we saw another poll today. Um, you know, uh, uh, President Biden has his worst poll among younger voters. 
um, where he's barely winning voters 18 to 34. Um, I think he actually does better in that poll among older voters, um, crazily enough. So we know polls are, are – there's something off, but it, it seems to be something more than that to where the polls are just not matching up with the results we're seeing. Right, Tim? Yeah, um it's definitely right, because look at what's been going on in all these results in these special elections and these statewide referendums. Look what just happened, you know, a few days ago all across the country, even in the good old red southern state of Mississippi. Uh, in, in Biden's case, you know, if you break down that poll, you saw that right now 21% of Democrats are not happy with him, with, with the job that he's doing. I do believe as we head toward the election, uh, that number is going to change and change dramatically, whereas Trump is, is getting uh, the support of, of in, in the low to mid-90s of Republicans with 6 or 7% that don't, you know, that, that, are, that are opposed to him. Uh, that's going to change with Democrats. Uh, and and, and then, then you turn to unaffiliated voters. I did find that part of the poll, uh, guys, to be a little disconcerting when, like, by a two-to-one margin, they are not approving at all of, of, of uh, Joe Biden as, as president. There's another question. Are these results a, just a total disconnect? From the presidential race, I don't see how it could be, but is it something to think about? What do you think? Well, well and, and Catherine, I will kind of add to this uh, before I kind of send it to you. Um, if we look, uh, there was another poll that came out because we might say, oh, well, it's Joe Biden doing poorly. But it showed Gavin Newsom doing poorly. It showed Kamala Harris losing. It showed Gretchen Whitmer losing, on and on and on. It was just like any Democrat they put up lost any Republican. I sent that poll to you. Also, we had that <laughs> insane finding showing that Nikki Haley was getting 56% of the vote. <laughs> I sent that in context for y'all. Ronald Reagan beat Walter Mondale on the actual election, not a poll with undecided voters, with 58% of the vote in one of the largest electoral victories in American history. And this is a person who I don't bet a half the people in America don't even know. Um, so this is kind of like, what is going on here? Catherine, that question, you know, what do we make of all the data we're getting, both at the polls and in the polls? Well, you know how I feel about this, I think. Uh, I think it's too, too early to poll. Um, I think – that the more we poll people, the the more the uh, results are fishy. What's that um, scientific uh, thing? The more you touch, the more you uh, touch something, the more it changes. I think um, I just I'm just not. I mean, I don't look at them honestly. You know, I go, glance at them when you send me send them to me, but. I take so little – I have so little faith in the in the polls. The only ones I really pay any attention to are uh, public policy polling because 
I think a lot of that stuff is just clickbait. You know, they take that like anything that's affiliated with a television station or a news a- news agency. I think they're just trying to get you to look at it. They're just trying to get uh, get you to you know click through and look at it. Um, and so I just don't put a lot of I don't have a lot of confidence in it. Um, I, it, it does concern me because it does have an impact because people look at it and they go, oh, my God, you know. My brother said it today. He lives in Brazil, and he said it to me today. Oh, I see Biden's falling in the polls. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're like a, a year away. I think we can relax for a minute before we panic. Yeah, it's something we're going to have to continue to see, and I think some focus groups are going to be interesting to add to the mix. I do think there is a scientific component to this. I think pollsters, want, by and large, want to get it right, and I think there's the Trafalgar group and some folks like that that definitely have an agenda. But I think a lot of these folks really do want to get it right. They just have the, the mix and the changes in the electorate and the changes in phone lines and, and, and everything, they're still not quite there. The change with younger voters and their habits with the phone, it, it's hard catching up. So uh, it's something we're going to have to keep a handle on across the next year. But I um, want to thank again Dr. Isabel Skinner for coming on and talking to us about immigration and border issues. Next week we have another friend of the show who's been on multiple times, and he's going to come back on again from Catawba College in North Carolina. Dr. Michael Bitzer is going to come on, and he's going to discuss North Carolina with us, which may be that state that uh, that number one state that President Biden's campaign is using to expand the map. Also, they have a fascinating governor's race, and they just ripped up their congressional maps as well. So we're going to have plenty to talk to Dr. Bitzer about next week on the Kudzu Vine. Till then, All right, good night, y'all. everybody. Good night. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.